Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Michael Wald and you're listening to Ask the Blood Detective and as you might have guessed, I am the blood detective. My name is Dr. Michael Wald and I'm the supervisor of nutritional services at Integrated Nutrition in Mount Kisco and I'm located in Westchester, New York, about an hour north of New York City. And for those of you who want to reach me with comments about this show and the show topic, by the way, today, it's a very interesting one, one that I'm very happy you tuned in for is when natural health fails. Please send your comments to info, like information at blooddetective.com, or you can visit my website for other shows, and you can leave comments on my blog at www.integratednutritionny.com. So the topic today, as I've just mentioned, is when natural health care fails. And some of my colleagues in natural health care are very uh, hesitant to even approach this topic. The mindset of natural medicine is, well, it is not any single mindset. It's a variety of mindsets, uh, as you would, meaning that through those of us that feel that anything, any disease, any illness, any malady whatsoever can be treated with natural medicine or natural health as long as we do it right. And there are others in my profession that have that take a different stance, and their stance is that sometimes natural health care is the most appropriate thing, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it does not. And then there are others who believe that a combination of natural health care and traditional medicine, Western medicine, is always the best approach, this is what they say, to any condition, sign, symptom, disease process. And as you might imagine, I can continue with various variations on this theme of natural health care. But what I want to talk about today is why natural health care can fail and why it fails when it does. So I am of the opinion, in my humble opinion, as a self-proclaimed blood detective, that natural health care does not always work in spite of the best, very best efforts that I put out or others like me put out. And even when an individual does exactly what they should do, things sometimes fail. Now, there's another nuance to this conversation, though, is, yes, if we could accept that nothing works all the time, natural health care can fail, even when it's done to the best of the ability of both the patient and the practitioner, how can we avoid the pitfall of failure? How can we reduce the chances of natural health care failing? Because this is something we can certainly affect. And I've seen many, many examples of failures of natural health care in my nearly 28 years of doing what I'm doing when... In many of these cases, it was very clear to me that there were just stunning uh, examples of just ineptitude 
on the part of the healthcare professional to provide the correct information to the patient. And on the other hand, oftentimes there are mistakes made on the side of the patient themselves. So I hope that what I offer today will affect you in the following way. That by being mindful of your role in your healthcare and also being mindful of your healthcare provider's role, you can stand watch for your own health. You can be the best advocate that you can be for your health, never wanting to, I believe, never, never should you accept blindly instructions from your healthcare provider. And also, never expect that if you're doing research, that your understanding of the research and the ideas and concepts that you have in terms of how you should be treated are always right. They may not be right. They may be partially right. They might be dead wrong. So one of the, one of the more common issues that I see with patients and people that I speak with that fail, that, that try natural health care of its different varieties, whether it's diet and or the use of nutritional supplements and or intravenous things, uh, exercise, uh, diet, of course, and other lifestyle factors. And there's, there's an unlimited number of natural health care methods and, and, and technologies available. But among the use of all of them, one of the main reasons why people fail is, in my opinion, they have unrealistic expectations. They might believe that they can cure their health problem a specific way. I'll give you an example. Just a few weeks ago, a gentleman called me up, about three weeks ago, and he has metastatic uh, prostate cancer. And he said that he is not going to use any traditional approaches whatsoever, no chemotherapy, nothing. And that he wanted to have his heavy metals checked, the metals in his body, because he believed that if he chelated these metals, he would cure his prostate cancer. So I certainly would say that there is a role of heavy metals in affecting immunity uh, to the point where they can adversely affect one's health and even cause cancer, even cause prostate cancer. But I would not go so far to say that if, even in that scenario, even if you remove the metals, that that's going to cure someone's cancer. Although it might be necessary in a given situation to do that, oftentimes by the time you remove the metals, too much damage has already happened. So in my humble opinion, I let this gentleman know that I felt that he needed to look beyond just metals. But it was, I very quickly understood it, uh, during the conversation that he, he just wasn't hearing it. And I've seen patients like him before. And although he could be an exception, most patients that I've seen that have complex healthcare problems like cancers, who feel that one simple way is going to fix their cancer and cure them, they have died trying. Another common reason for failure of natural health care to work, or even traditional medical approaches to work, is that the patient might have an overestimation of the knowledge and abilities of the healthcare provider. As an example of this, I am thinking of right now of a very vivid image 
of an extremely sick woman who came to my office one day a few years back and my staff came to me and they their faces were pale as ghosts. And they said, Dr. Wald, your next patient is here. I said, fantastic, please escort them in. And they said, no, 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 you don't understand. She's in the car. She can't walk. I said, oh, okay. So let's all go out there and we're going to help her uh, help her in. And I approached the car, and as I opened the car, I could, I could just smell the death there. And this woman was in the back seat, and she looked like a skeleton. She could barely move. I easily picked her up, brought her into the office, and she started to come around a little bit. And she said to me during our conversation about her health history that she had been diagnosed with... Um, cervical cancer, and that at one point the cervical cancer was confined to her cervix, but then it metastasized, and this is the situation she's in now. She had told me that at the beginning of her cancer, when her cervical tumor was first discovered, that she saw a prominent healthcare provider who said to her, listen, you need to drink juices, you need to take these supplements, you need to eat this way, and it'll cure your cancer. Now, I am not saying that natural health cannot cure cancer, but it certainly didn't cure her cancer. And then as she started to feel worse and she followed the instructions by her healthcare provider perfectly to the letter, she kept immaculate records. Uh, she learned that she had metastasis and she went back to the nutritional practitioner and the practitioner said, well, you should, you should do chemotherapy and surgery. And she's sitting here in my office now telling me, you know, Dr. Wald, I was astounded when the practitioner who first told me to do all this natural stuff and said that chemotherapy and radiation were not to ever be done. And there I was in his office and he recommended I do this. And now I'm in this situation, and she was in horrific pain. She still hung tight to the natural health approach, helping her even with the pain to the extent that she didn't even take painkillers just to make her, her more comfortable. I found out afterwards that within a few days, her husband called up that uh, they had gone to the hospital after seeing us. They gave her an IV of some, uh, some morphine, and made her much more comfortable. She said her goodbyes, and, and that was that. This very same healthcare practitioner, who is extremely well-known, uh, had given the similar advice to other patients, and three of those people had seen me with the scenario being almost exactly as the one I just described. Almost exactly the same scenario. So my point is this. Number one, we might overestimate what a practitioner can do. A practitioner, in my view, should always give balanced information. If an individual chooses to follow or not follow some information once it's presented to them, well, that is fine because that's an educated, proactive choice. But in the cases that I, the case I just gave and the few other cases that followed, they were not given a fair shot at the information and made limited choices, therefore, and, and they, it ended up taking their lives. 
Uh, during this particular show, again, for those of you who are joining us, this is When Natural Healthcare Fails. I'm being very frank with you about some of the things I've seen over my 28-year duration of uh, natural healthcare practice because I hope that it will help you become a better uh, healthcare advocates and will help me to be a better practitioner. Another um, mistake that I find that uh, people make is that they'll overestimate their understanding of, let's say, nutrition or natural health. I had a woman in the office just a few weeks ago, and she reported with her son. And she said uh, she seemed to be very presumptive in terms of her knowledge, and I, I listened, and I presumed that maybe she studied a bit. And I heard a combination of correct concepts on her end and some that were just blatantly, obviously wrong and inconsistencies. But she had this strong belief that the white, uh, the white spots on her son's fingernails were because he had a zinc deficiency. And um, certainly white spots on the nails can be caused by zinc or even protein deficiencies. But I let her know that the problem could also be a very common problem of the nails known as leukonychia. And what leukonychia basically is, is a sign of some past injury to what's known as the matrix or the base of the nails. And I had done some, um, I had done a zinc test on her child and it did not show that there was an issue uh, with zinc. And she was very upset with me expressing that my testing was wrong and how could it not be? And I explained to her that it could be this condition. Uh, not to mention though that testing isn't 100% accurate and that we had already considered that maybe her son needed zinc. So it gave her son a little bit of zinc regardless, but she was stuck on this point that the test would have to always match what you see. And now that's a presumption that she had made, which is completely untrue. There are lots of visual signs of problems on a person that are not consistent with what might be found on a blood test or a urine test or something like that. It's just something we know is true in uh, biochemistry testing. And as, as, the, as a blood detective, as someone who looks at blood chemistry, I know that this inconsistency exists and that I have to use my experience and look at all the things that I see and find on a person to draw conclusions, not just any one thing. So this is an example of how an individual might have a concept of something that they bring into the practitioner's office. And when that concept is not satisfied, that person gets upset and they go away, which is sad to me because when they leave, I can't help them. And if they're not open to learning, then once again, I can't help them. Individuals will search, uh, do Google searches. So I certainly support uh, an individual's efforts to learn. And Google is a main place to gather information. Not everything on Google, as we all know, is correct. And how do you know what's correct? How do you know what's not correct? Well, the best answer that I can give you is that if you are seeing a healthcare provider and you have read some important information and you want to make sense of it and understand it, 
that you might want to discuss it with your healthcare provider. And then if that conversation goes in such a way that it seems, it seems reasonable to you that um, what your understanding uh, is of something is correct, then, then you go with it. So generally, you might want to find a practitioner who specializes in whatever area of information uh, you're interested in. Now, for those of you who've listened to my show before, this next point won't, won't be a, a stretch for your imagination, but I've had a number of people come in and sit with me and say, well, I believe that my problem is inflammation, is inflammation, and I believe that I am acidic, and I sh- therefore I'm, I've been eating an alkaline diet. Those three statements, inflammation, acidity, and alkaline diet, there's so much wrong with that that uh, it, it sometimes can make the difference between someone living or dying or getting better or worse with a health problem. Here's what I mean. This is an example of someone having a right concept but just going about it the wrong way and how the healthcare profession, the natural healthcare profession, perpetuates wrong ideas on occasion. So let's look at this. This person believed that they were acidic and had inflammation and should have an alkaline diet. Let's take the alkaline diet part first. That means that if someone eats foods, they'll choose foods that are considered to be alkaline, let's say like vegetables. And that means that in a laboratory, when they grind up the vegetables in water and they stick a pH stick in it, it'll give a alkaline pH reading. So the idea is that if you eat the alkaline foods, it will make you alkaline. Sounds pretty straightforward, right? Well, it's, the, the fact is it's, that's probably wrong most of the time. When a person eats alkaline foods, it has to go through many complex processes before the body's various pH systems respond, if they respond at all. So if you eat that alkaline food, that food needs to be digested in the acid stomach. And then once the proteins are broken down, and in starches we don't really have any, but then the food goes into the small intestine, and then the Uh, starch digesting enzymes are exposed to that food from the pancreas. And then uh, digestion occurs and assimilation occurs. Depending upon how that's digested, the body will change the pH in different compartments, meaning in the urine or the saliva. So in other words, what you eat, acid or, or alkaline, can and does change your pH. But in your acid, I'm sorry, in your urine or in your saliva, pretty much only. Now, the urine, saliva, and the the urine and the saliva do not necessarily represent the blood pH, which is the key pH for things like cancer and inflammatory and autoimmune conditions. You want to change the blood. If you have a urinary tract infection. That usually means the urine is more alkaline than it should be. So changing that to more acid is obviously important in, in the urine compartment. But when you eat foods the way I just described, there are, there are a number of very tightly controlled regulation systems in physiology that maintains what we call homeostasis, which is a balance, which means the blood pH should be very, very tightly controlled at about a 74 And 
there is nothing <clears throat> that a healthy person can eat that will change that blood pH, with few exceptions. If a person ate large amounts of meat all the time, we're talking over the top, maybe they might lower their blood pH by 0.5. However, they will change their urine and the saliva pH by dramatic amounts. My point here, and you can listen to more about pH physiology on my show, located on my blog at my website called PH Lies for more detail. But my point here is if a person thinks that they're going to make themselves alkaline by eating alkaline, what they mean is they might make their saliva or urine alkaline, but that doesn't mean they're making their blood alkaline. In fact, if you make your blood too alkaline, you, that's not even compatible with living. So it is true, though, if a person has cancer, cancerous spread, metastasis, tends to be slowed down when the blood pH is on the higher end of the normal range, which means it's not alkaline, but it's more on the alkaline end than it is on the acid end. Okay, and again, listen to pH lies. There's more there. So back to this example. So eating alkaline is not going to make someone alkaline. And even if it would, we'd have to be specific. Well, where is it going to make us alkaline? Is it in our saliva? Is it in our urine? It's certainly not going to make our stomachs alkaline. It's not going to make uh, our blood pH alkaline. That's just not going to happen. There are quick ways of making your blood alkaline, though, and that's with using either sodium or potassium bicarbonate baking soda. And that effect will only last about 10 or 15 minutes. Now, the last point with this example is this woman, again, wanted to eat alkaline to reduce inflammation. Can making your, your body, do you need alkalinity to reduce inflammation? Uh, the answer is yes and no. If you have inflammation in your urinary tract from acidity, let's say hyperacidity, then yes, making it a little, adding more alkaline into your diet might bring your pH a little bit higher, keeping it still in the acid range as it should be, but less acid. And if we really wanted to make someone's blood truly alkaline, which means greater than 7.45, more than diet would be needed for that. There's no amount of green leafy juices that can do that. And if you doubt me, all you need to do is go to your practitioner and have them measure your blood pH and then try whatever diet you'd like for as long as you'd like. And you will find that unless you're super, super sick, your blood pH is between 7.35 and 7.45. Very, very tight. I said earlier the average blood pH was 7.4. That's right in the middle of 7.35 and 7.45. For you people who are not numbers people, that's all we're going to talk about in terms of numbers. Another way that people fail is that they visit with healthcare providers that are not qualified. Maybe they have not had years of experience treating the kind of condition that you have or any condition. Or maybe their training is limited. Maybe it's only in one area of nutrition or like sports nutrition or it's, only, it's in cancer care but you have cardiovascular disease or you have an autoimmune problem and they mostly treat urinary tract infections or GI problems. So you always want to find the right nutritionist. 
and you want to make sure they have the proper training. So we have a lot of nutritionists, or what I call online nutritionists these days, that get their certifications uh, over the web. Now, I am not at all saying that that is bad. I myself, one of the most, one of the most educational nutritional credentials that I received about 25 years ago was uh, from the Clayton College of Naturopathy. I remember I was so excited for the information to come and two tremendous boxes arrived with books. I don't think I left my house for six months. I mean, I read straight. In fact, I completed four of their programs in the shortest time of anyone who ever had attended their school. Now, having said that, I've learned over the years that about a third of the information I had learned during that program was just wrong. And by the way, that's not that bad because a lot of what we learn in professional schools, this is sort of the, the mantra in, in medical school, even in chiropractic school, that 95% of what we learn is completely impractical and half of what's remaining is just wrong. So that's why they call it practice. When you go into practice, you're practicing, right? We just don't want to hurt someone while we're practicing. So I would ask the practitioner, where did you get your credentials? There are other um, online nutrition courses. For example, there's one of them that's very popular in New York City, and they teach you something like 21 diets or something. That is not enough. That is not enough. The, the amount of hours training that a qualified nutritionist, just a dietitian has, is a minimum of four years. Now, if you're not a big fan of di- dietitians, remember that there are dietitians that have further training in alternative and functional medicine, uh, like I do, of multiple years after that. So there are different credentials. I'll just name a few very quickly. Uh, when I was in chiropractic college, we had a ton of nutrition. So there's that. Then there's a, a board certification by chiropractors in nutrition. I have that. And then there's another board certification that's open to physicians and practitioners and chiropractors. That's another two years beyond that. In the state of New York, I'm a licensed dietitian. That's more education. The state of New York also has a certification called Clinical Nutrition uh, Certification, or CNS. And um, Clinical Nutrition Specialist, actually, that's called. And that, that is also recognized uh, by New York State. And then there are a bunch of others. When I went to medical school, I was astounded at how little nutrition uh, there was. But my point is that when someone goes through some serious training and then has years of study, that is quite a bit better than someone just getting a very limited, focused nutrition certification, whether it's online or not. For those of you joining us, we are talking about when natural health fails. The next example of when natural health fails is when certain individuals will go to healthcare providers and they start out like gangbusters. They're motivated and they start doing something and then all of a sudden they just drop out. Maybe they had two visits, three visits. Some individuals believe, well, they had no idea, I should say, that the process of health is a process and it may require more than a single visit to a healthcare provider. It may require more than two or even three or four visits. So before you start with a healthcare provider, you might wanna ask them to give you some rough idea of either how many visits you think it might take to manage my healthcare problem or at the very least, 
um, ask them that after you visited with them the first time so they can have some real uh, concept of that, but to always be prepared for the fact that sometimes you cannot predict it. There is no saying how you will heal. You will comply with certain things, nutritionally speaking, with other advice by your healthcare provider, you're not going to comply. Life might get busy, you don't follow through. Or you're doing everything right. And then after two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, you're not as better, you're not doing as well as you thought you should. So you drop out because you might develop, I'm not saying you personally, but people will develop this concept, well, it's not working, it's been a month. Depending on the healthcare problem, it could take quite a bit longer. So testing is also available that helps estimate some of these response rates. Another big one that has many people fail is that they don't understand the difference between the expression of symptoms they might have and the disease process beneath the surface. So in a moment, I'm going to talk about that. My name is Dr. Michael Wald. And I am Supervisor of Nutritional Services at Integrated Nutrition in Mount Kisco, located in Mount Kisco, New York, about an hour north of New York City. Please email me with questions, concerns, and show topics at info at blooddetective.com. Now, the difference between symptoms, a painful back, a headache, fatigue, brain fog, dry skin, bloating, gas, cramping, all of that and the process underneath that causes those symptoms may express entirely differently. Meaning, a person may come in and say, Dr. Wald, you know, I stopped coming to you because I feel fine. Uh, I feel fine now, thank you. And I'll say, well, sometimes I'll say, well, yeah, great, because you're feeling fine, your testing looks great, let's touch base in a couple of months. And then you, you check in on people and, and you make sure to make adjustments as needed over time because that needs to change. And other times, a patient will say to me, Dr. Wald, I feel great, so are we done? <laughs> and I'll say, well, I know that you're feeling good, but you do have these several abnormalities on your blood tests and uh, we, should, we should correct them. And they might say, which is reasonable, well, well maybe they don't matter. I mean, I feel fine. What does it matter that my blood is imperfect on paper? And besides, I am feeling fine. And then I say, well, you might continue to feel fine. That's possible. But the fact that these are abnormal, they tend to suggest that you have a higher risk of heart attack or hypertension or cancer or something based on these abnormalities. And then they might say, well, why, why do I feel good then? And I'll say, well, you feel good now, that's obvious. And you might, you might not feel good though in two weeks or 10 weeks or two years if these findings are persistent. They clearly have not gotten to a point or the point where you're not feeling well. And it would be best to remedy these now because it's always better to fix a problem when it's under the surface, so to speak, than when it's, when it's surfaced. Whenever I think about the difference between symptoms and the disease process, I'm reminded of a a woman that I saw several years back whose sister was a physician's assistant in training, smart lady. And this young woman in her 30s, I believe it was early 30s, might have been mid 30s, 
when she stepped into the office and sat down, my first thought was, wow, what this is a very sweet lady. She's beautiful on the outside, certainly. And I expected she might have some minor problem. And without sitting down for more than three seconds, she said, I have cancer metastasized throughout multiple organs. And they tell me I'm going to die. But I feel fine. How can that be? And, you know, I reluctantly say to her that until the metastasis spreads to involve the sensory system of the body, the sensory nerves, a person doesn't feel anything. If we did have a different setup of our nervous system in some of these internal organs, we might feel cancer a lot earlier. And in those cases where someone is just astounded with a diagnosis of metastatic cancer, that's because the body did not give appropriate symptoms, which are warning signals. So this brings me to the other point. And maybe this applies to you. Have you ever said to your practitioner or to a friend, I, I feel fine. So I don't need to build my health in any way. I'm, I'm fine. And you know, I think one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why a disease and uh, quality of life is so affected uh, by so many people and the rates of cancers and infections and cardiovascular disease, including stroke and infections are on the rise, is that most people numb their symptoms with medications and then by the time these internal problems show up, they're huge problems. And they're just astounded that no doctor ever picked this up. I remember a patient saying to me, Dr. Wald, how can this be? Yes, I, I didn't do nutrition during my life more than basics, but I, was, I felt good, I was active. I, um, I avoided drugs when I could, but, but sometimes I, I did take things. And all of a sudden, I'm diagnosed with metastatic cancer and my doctor says my blood work is perfectly normal even now. This has come up several times in my career. This is not at all an unusual thing in a doctor's office that a person will, have, will be very, very sick, but their blood work may look fine. You know what, what the answer is, why that is? Well, part of the answer is that the labs that were done by the doctor are not the right labs to uncover the underlying disease process. In other words, as you know, different doctors check people differently. So if the problem, let's say, was an, a hormonal issue and you're seeing your internist, they might, might not have done those tests other than thyroid. They don't, generally don't do other hormonal tests, which might have revealed abnormalities that caused the growth of, let's say, cancer or endometriosis or whatever the problem is. And then people will say to me, I've been to every doctor, they've done every test. And when they say that to me, I say to myself, here we go again. I look at the testing and sadly, once again, I'm usually disappointed. It's not very thorough. Also very commonly, the test will show abnormalities that admittingly weren't huge. These, the abnormalities didn't all add up to a specific disease but they do add up to a dis-ease, a dysfunction. And uh, the doctors didn't explain any of it to the patient. One of the first things that I do when someone sees me and they have their old blood work with, with them or other tests, I'll say, would you mind if I 
review those tests with you just so we know what was done in the past and we can use any information that might be of value moving ahead. And they say, sure. And I look at the tests, I start slowly explaining things and they say, what? What are you talking about? And I'm like, well, right here, it's it, your red blood cells are large. That means you have a B6, B12 folic acid, vitamin C, E, and B1 insufficiency. And over here, you have a high CO2, which means you probably have some sort of respiratory problem, and that actually does lower the blood pH. And the point, though, here is that they're not told about these little abnormalities, and the reason is they don't add up to a specific disease based upon that doctor's specialty or any doctor's specialty. They might just be abnormalities that there isn't a drug for or a treatment for. And that, of course, is a very limited perspective. Once again, you're listening to Ask the Blood Detective. We're talking about when natural treatments fail, but as you can imagine, at this point, we're not just talking about how natural treatments fail. We're talking about how healthcare providers can fail their patients, but also how patients can fail themselves by not being in open communication with qualified healthcare professionals. You know, sometimes I'll see a patient who says, I am certain that I have candida or I believe that my Lyme, Lyme disease is the cause of my current problems, or metals are the cause of my healthcare problem, and they steadfast hold to these concepts, even when every test shows that that is not a problem. Now, yes, it's true, I said earlier, tests aren't always correct, but a lot of times, folks, tests are correct. But I also take it a step further. If someone strongly believes that they have a particular cause or health problem that testing is not showing, depending on what that is, I would always say, well, it won't hurt you to, to do the natural treatment for candida or natural chelation, for example, that can't hurt you. And if it is an issue, that if you have those problems, then they should go away. In the case of Lyme disease, that's a little different. If the person test does not show positive, et cetera, et cetera, or they do some special tests from some lab in New Jersey, uh, the bottom line is that it could, everyone's got a positive Lyme test from that particular lab. But my point is the person can either get another round of doxycycline or some combination of antibiotics or intravenous antibiotics possibly. And many of my patients have done that already. And they say to me, Dr. Wald, I do those things. I do that IV antibiotic and I feel better. And then when I stop, I feel worse. And I say, well, that doesn't mean it's from Lyme disease. And they say, well, what do you mean? Antibiotics are anti-inflammatories as well. And inflammation, as we all know, is the cause of most disease. So anything that you take that reduces inflammation can make you feel better in the short term. Now, I use this example of Lyme disease simply because uh, it's a big problem. And I think this should really be a topic for another show, but what I will say is that if a person feels strongly that they have a certain disease or a certain cause, then they should first explore the natural approach because it, it, it's far less potentially harmful than the medical alternative in almost every case. In the case of Lyme disease, most people have already tried the antibiotics. 
And if they haven't worked, well, then what else is there? They need to fix the structure of their nervous system and control their inflammation and their immune system. And that nutrition can do quite well when done right. I'm teaching in Pittsburgh uh, next month two doctors on the topic of autoimmune diseases and how to restructure the brain and nervous system through the proper use of nutrition. So there's protocols I'm gonna teach these practitioners. And these practitioners are gonna be smart about it because I'm gonna tell them this. And they're going to look at the individual patient and their testing and their unique situation. And then they're gonna apply the general protocols within a more personalized approach for them. That is another cause of why natural medicine, natural health fails, because it is too general. So for example, someone might have a leaky gut. So the first thing they think about is a probiotic, except it may not work. And they wonder why, because a probiotic may be just one of several things a person needs. Plus, if the cause of the leaky gut was not a deficiency of probiotics, then it's probably not gonna cure it. So we always wanna look for causes and then attack those causes as naturally as possible, if natural healthcare is your mind uh, frame, or frame of mind, I should say, and uh, take it from there. Another very, very common cause of why natural health fails is that some of the tools of natural health are faulty in some way. So one of the major tools of natural health care are the use of nutritional supplements. And for those of you who listened to my show, my prior show, What's in, these, What's in Those Supplements, which was the same title as a New York Times article a few years back when it was discovered that um, by, uh, by governmental investigations that the majority of nutritional supplements sold in health food stores were worthless. They didn't even have the active ingredients or any of the ingredients on the label in them. Um, we'll remember this. It was also on Dateline NBC, and it's actually true. So people will do their best to adhere to complex nutritional supplement protocols, but they don't know that the supplements are inferior. So there are some healthcare providers that are aware of this, and they've spent a lot of their own money and time and education to develop either their own products that are generally, and you must ask them about this, pharmaceutical grade. Pharmaceutical grade supplements are almost always a bit more expensive than store-bought supplements as they should be, because they're real, and they're standardized, meaning you know exactly what is in them. So I had a patient come in yesterday and she said, Dr. Wald, uh, I finished your medium chain triglyceride supplement, but I replaced it with this other company that I found. A friend told me about it because it's cheaper. And I said, I said, okay, what is the company name? And then she told me. And then I said, well, the medium chain triglycerides from that company are 12 to 16 carbons long. That's the molecular formula. But the studies show that the medium chain triglyceride molecular lengths should be between six and 10 or possibly 12 carbons long. And that's what my MCT formula has. That's the one that you want. And then she said, oh, I, I didn't understand that. But they're both labeled MCT. But unless 
that scenario comes up, how can a patient ever know the difference? She'd have to ask. You know, I want to admit something to you all right now. So this particular show, I happen to be dictating on my cell phone in the middle of a busy day of seeing patients. And I stopped the show. And now I've come back to you, the audience, after uh, over an hour of absence, sitting with a new patient. And this new patient uh, experience was a good one, which demonstrates several of the mistakes that just go wrong in natural health care that cause failure. Number one, this patient, this one woman, has endometriosis, she has gut issues, she has acne issues. She had seen a naturopath, and uh, the naturopath said to her that she had weak adrenals, and she had heavy metal toxicity, and that she required copper, and that her bad estrogen is elevated. And the patient gave me her lab test, and I'm looking at the lab test. There are probably around 20 pages worth of labs, and I'm looking, and I'm looking, and I'm looking, and, and I don't see anything that she's telling me. So I said to the patient, I said, can, can you please show me where it says here that you have weak adrenals? And she looked at the, at the test and she says, well, I'm not really sure why. She, the naturopath mentioned something about my adrenal hormones. So the testing did show her adrenal hormones, but they were all perfectly normal. They couldn't have been better. So then I said, and what about the metals? She says, oh, yes, yes. She, she really emphasized that uh, I have heavy metal issues that are throwing off my bad estrogen. I said, well, that can absolutely happen. I said, I'm looking at the test here, though. Is it possible you didn't bring any other tests? She says, oh, no, these are all of the tests. I said, well, there are no metal levels here. So this was an example, assuming this patient is uh, being truthful, that the, this particular practitioner had said to her that, that she had heavy metals because she may have thought she did, but not based on any evidence. But then she said that the patient had weak adrenals when her adrenal glands were not weak. She also told her that her bad estrogen was elevated and it wasn't elevated. So I don't know, I didn't know what to say to her other than I tried to be polite. I said, well, I do not see any of those issues here. And I also said, if you're on copper, I said, why are you on copper? She says, well, I was told I needed copper. I said, well, what are you taking it for? She says, I don't know. And this woman is trying to get pregnant and copper in excess can cause birth defects. So I also detected that this lady uh, had an underpinning of anxiety. So I didn't want to panic her. So I said, well, you know, I would ask you to discontinue the copper until we can get a clearer picture of what's going on. But I would like to do my own set of tests. And she was very grateful for that. So here's an example of just lack of evidence uh, and also, quite frankly, lack of education with a healthcare provider did not educate this woman. And she got false concepts of what's going on. So this is something that will lead to poor decision-making and panic because this lady did have some anxiety over this. I need to mention one other thing. This patient said to me, um, and I, I know that I have uh, borderline diabetes. She said that my insulin level uh, was, was off. She used the term off. 
And I said, well, okay, do you have those test results? She says, well, they're in front of you. I said, well, there's no insulin level here. There's not even a glucose level. And there's not a hemoglobin A1C, which is a test that would be the test that tells you if a person is borderline diabetic. So once again, wrong information. Wrong, wrong, wrong. So what I'm going to do is try to avoid another mistake among practitioners that causes natural remedies, natural approaches to fail, and that is known as coordination of patient care. So I'm going to call the naturopath and clarify all of this because that's in the best interest of my patients. How often has your doctor called another doctor to coordinate your care? Maybe never, and maybe it it didn't need to happen, but maybe it did. And in this case, I think you would agree with me, coordination care needs to happen because we're failing. We are failing this woman if we don't do that. How can I put all the puzzle pieces together if I don't clarify what the puzzle pieces are and what the puzzle pieces are not? She saw another practitioner that did a fatty acid test where it measures all these complicated molecules of the fatty acids, you know, like omega-3s and omega-6s and omega-9s. And underneath each of those categories, 3s, 6s, and 9s, there's other fatty acids to measure. And I don't do this test anymore because over 20 years ago when I did do it a bunch of times for a couple of years, I found that almost everyone's test result was the same. It said they had high omega-3s. Now, the patient said to me, my doctor who did this test, Dr. Wald, she said, said that I have high inflammation based on this test. This woman had high levels of EPA. That's omega-3, the anti-inflammatory. I said, well, I'm sure you do have high inflammation just based on your symptoms, but this test result, if anything, says you should be coping with inflammation pretty well because your omega-3s are high. In other words, if I were just reading the test and didn't know you, the test says good inflammation control, but the test is wrong because you're not controlling your inflammation well. She says, well, what should I do? I said, well, one of the things is you need more omega-3s. She said, but wait a minute, you just told me the test was high. I said, it needs to be higher. We need to find your new normal your blood detective normal, what level of omega-3 or perhaps other nutrients, maybe phytonutrients from plants, you need for your anti-inflammation. Remember, when we're talking about normal tests and abnormal levels on blood or urine or saliva, these are ranges based on averages of people. Averages, by definition, have nothing to do with you as an individual or any of my individual patients. So this brings us to yet another arena where natural therapies fail. The best natural therapies can fail when they are based on the wrong testing. So testing is done when the practitioner needs to figure things out beyond a guess. And testing, if done correctly and timed appropriately, will allow a practitioner to adjust his or her natural therapies or medical therapies in a more personalized way. It's all about personalizing it. Even traditional medicine is now talking about the new movement of personalized patient care. I don't even know what they're talking about. 
medical appointments are shorter and shorter. There is more useless, damaging types of tests being used. So the point is the right test has to be done. If you do not need an x-ray, you should not get an x-ray. If the doctor can already reason that you have arthritis in your neck or in your back and loss of disc height and your curve is off, do you really need another x-ray so that you can glow in the dark from radiation? I don't think so. But medicine sometimes insists on it. And they won't do an MRI for soft tissue unless you get an x-ray. And my show, folks, that I did called Radiation Protection or Radiation All Around Us, I described the details of how you can take detox one, two, three, and four, one scoop of each, a big drink each day, and an extra dose on the day of radiation could conceivably cut down your accumulated dose of radiation. And during that radio show about radiation, I actually gave medical evidence for the intake of some of the same phytonutrients and antioxidants that I have in my products that can do that. When we talk about doing the right testing, there are some what I call fundamental tests that I believe everyone should have done, and then there are more specific tests. So for those of you who have heard Ask the Blood Detective before, you know that I talk about pH. You know that I talk about body composition. You may or may not remember I talk about lactic acid levels and nitric oxide levels and vitamin C levels in the urine and vitamin C activity testing in the urine and absorption tests. Do you absorb or not? Or do you malabsorb what you are eating, both foods and supplements? These sorts of tests that I just mentioned are some of the most basic ones because their results can affect every aspect of health. And there are nutritional interventions that can actually change them. So whenever you're thinking of doing a test or told to get a test or set of tests, think and ask, will these tests change the therapy in any significant way? And if yes, are the inherent dangers of doing the test outweighed by the, knowing the results? And I suppose I should, I should end today by saying that there are a, there's a mountain of statistics that point to the dangers of modern medicine as well. So both modern medicine can uh, create dangers and can be done wrong, as well as natural medicine. And when I say there's a mountain of statistics compiled by a team of researchers, they were led by Drs. Gary Knoll and Dr. Carolyn Dean, uh, MD, and they they did a study which uh, was succinctly titled Death by Medicine, which was originally published in 2006, and they showed that more than 750,000 deaths occur in the United States alone as a direct result of poor medical care. That is more people that are dying than those lost to either cancer or heart disease. So I can go on about that study, but suffice it to say that it takes an educated consumer, one who asks questions, and a healthcare consumer like you who works with a knowledgeable healthcare provider who is willing to be challenged. If you say to your healthcare provider, I need evidence for that, please send it to me, please explain it to me. If you detect any amount of bias, if you detect any amount of attitude, you're probably in the wrong place. 
So I want to thank everyone for joining me today. My name is Dr. Michael Wald. You've been listening to Ask the Blood Detective, today's show topic. I hope you enjoyed it, got something from it, because I think it's so, so important is when natural health care fails. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll see you next time. Too late.